0: Sermons in term two. Got a, a great night planned, and we're extraordinarily lucky to have Dr. John Woodhouse with us to lead us through this introduction to this intriguing and challenging part of the Old Testament. Let me tell you a little bit about John that I know, uh, and then he can uh, correct all my mistakes, and then we'll let him loose upon us. Uh, John's married to Moya. They have four great kids, or two. Three really great kids and one fairly good kid. And uh, lots and lots of grandchildren. How many grandchildren, John? Fourteen grandchildren. Can you remember all their birthdays? Okay. That's right. Uh, I first met John when he was the senior minister at um, the church that I grew up in at Christ Church St. Ives. And uh, John actually gave me my first gig in Christian ministry. Uh, It took a great risk and punt on me. Thank you for that. Um, But then he actually left before I started that job, thank you for that, Uh, to become the principal at Moore College, uh, where he was for a number of years. He uh, has semi-recently retired but is still very active in church life, um, such as things like tonight. Uh, He has quite literally written the book on 1 and 2 Samuel, and I'll tell you a little bit more about those books later on tonight as there'll be an opportunity to order them uh, at the back end of our evening and uh, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have him with us tonight. So would you please give him a welcome? <laughs> Let me tell you how tonight's going to work. Uh, for the, fir- the next 40 minutes or so, uh, John will just lead us through uh, the introduction to-, to Samuel. And it'll be very helpful for you to have the um, the outlines. If you don't have an outline, raise your hand. And Ben, would you be happy just to distribute any? Any outlines to people with raised hands? Can't see too well, there's a couple up the back, obviously late comers. Okay, then we'll have a very short break, five minutes really just to refresh our brains and there'll be time for some questions, then I'll tell you about a couple of books that you might be interested in getting and we'll aim to close somewhere between 9.15 and 9.30. Does that sound okay to everyone? Excellent, cool. Well, let me uh, pray for us as we begin. And then we'll get into 2 Samuel. Heavenly Father, God, we do want to thank you for your great grace in speaking to us through your scriptures in in many different forms and genres and ways. Some of them are more challenging than others. We pray uh, for the next uh, hour and a half or so that it is a time where it challenges us, but also warms our hearts. Your great goodness uh, and our great need for a leader who is ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray as we think about 2 Samuel, and all the way, uh, all the many ways it speaks to us and sets up that great hope that you would indeed be warming our hearts and challenging our spirits. We pray that you'd speak through John um, to do just that in Jesus' name, Amen.
1: John. Well, thank you, Scott. I'd love to tell you some things I know about Scott, but we haven't got time. You got time for that? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll catch me later on. Uh, friends, I, I, have, I wonder if you have this experience, if you're a, a regular Bible reader, and I know that most of you will be that. Uh, I find myself, uh, all the time, uh, whatever book I happen to be studying at the moment, uh, and happen to be reading at the moment, and having to get into and starting to understand, uh, I, I get convinced that it is the most important book in the Bible. Uh, that happens again and again with different books over and over again. And in a sense, that's the way in which the Bible works. Uh, every part of the Bible is a brilliant contribution to the truth that the whole Bible brings us. And uh, yeah, it's happened again uh, to Samuel. Well, actually, I was really digging into 2 Samuel a few years ago. And I've moved on to be digging into 1 Kings, and now 1 Kings is the most important book in the Bible, but I'm afraid tonight we're devoted to the second most important book. Uh, We'll we'll go back to 2 Samuel. Uh, I'm really thrilled that you're going to uh, spend the term, uh, you could easily spend the year, uh, studying a book like 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. I was reminded a little while ago that I think I was back, I was here a few years ago introducing one Samuel, so you're making progress, that's really good, into two Samuel. And some of the things I want to say to start with are the things I said back then, but I don't expect you to remember them, remember them that's, that, that, that's why I'm going to say them again. When you approach a book in the Old Testament, you really do have to begin by thinking what you're doing, why you're doing it. Why are we reading the Old Testament? What is the Old Testament for? Now, I don't want to labour this point because I'm sure that you are very familiar with it, but we do need to be, be very clear uh, that as we read the Old Testament, particularly as we read these extraordinary stories and narratives, and 2 Samuel is packed with a remarkable narrative, and it, it, it matches 1 Samuel very, very well indeed, we, we, it, it's very tempting to read the stories and read them for their moral worth. Read them for the moral lessons because there's no doubt that many of these stories, and some of them in a most staggering way, uh, so staggering and so powerful are some of them. You you won't have heard the stories because no one's quite game to preach on them. They're so powerful. There's one particular one I've got in mind, hidden away in 2 Samuel. I won't tell you where it is. You'll find it as you work your way through. The stories have power, many of them at least, have, have enormous moral power, but that's not actually what they're there for. They're also not there simply to give us a historical background to the New Testament. So you read the Old Testament so you know what happened before so that you'll understand the New Testament in that kind of historical setting way. And they're certainly not there so that we can read about the God of the Old Testament and see how different the God of the New Testament is. That's not what they're there for by any means. But what is the Old Testament there for? It's about two-thirds of our Bibles. And the question is, I like to put it like this. Why really didn't we get to the end of Genesis chapter 3 and then go straight to Matthew chapter 1? That is, when there was the fall of humanity, when sin came in and wrecked things, when the world was messed up because of human rebellion against God, if God intended to fix that up, and he intended to fix it up by sending his son, why didn't it happen straight away? Why this long period of time, why this long history, this long story, this two-thirds of our Bible, before we get to Matthew chapter 1? What is it there for? And the simple answer, simple but profoundly true answer, it could be elaborated, is simply that that period of time is the necessary preparation for what Jesus Christ would eventually do. We need to get into our minds that the coming of Jesus and what he has accomplished is so huge it had to be prepared for at a whole lot of different levels at a very basic level we could not understand we couldn't begin to grasp what Jesus did if we weren't given the categories to understand it in and so you get the long story of the Old Testament preparing for the coming of Jesus and once you get that and you get that very clearly from the New Testament I'm not going to go through and pull out all the passages I'm sure you can find passages that will show you this but the New Testament wherever wherever it turns to the Old Testament it turns to the Old Testament to help you to understand Jesus that's what the Old Testament is there for that's what the New Testament teaches us about the Old Testament once you get that and once you you see that's what the Old Testament's there for you can see the Old Testament what I've said in the notes there in proper perspective. And you see it in proper perspective by getting the broad shape of the Bible. And the Bible, which is such an enormous book, you sort of need to see its framework to be able to understand what it is all about. You can get lost in it. But its broad framework is very simple. It is this. It begins with the news that the God who has created everything has a purpose for everything. And he has promised that he is going to bring that purpose to realisation. And when we find that the world is a messed up world, we hear the promise of God that he is going to put things right in this profoundly messed up world. The Bible begins with that that there is a God. He has this purpose and he has made that promise. The story that then follows for the next centuries is the story of what God did because he is faithful to his promise and he's powerful enough to pull it off. Since he is the God who has created all things, you can be confident he's powerful enough to pull off that extraordinary promise that he is going to put all things right in this terribly messed up world. The Old Testament tells the story of what he did in his faithfulness and in his power uh, in, in faithfulness to the promise that he made. When you get to the New Testament, you start to read the story of the fulfillment of the promise, the 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 realization of what was promised and of course the key to the New Testament is understanding that in Jesus Christ God has done is doing and will do what he promised at the beginning he will accomplish this putting all things right and when you've got that shape of the Bible you then come back, when you turn back to read your Old Testament as a Christian person, a Christian believer, a Christian person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, you see the Old Testament, and you see what it's all about, where it is all heading. Uh, I like to use the little uh, the example that my wife gave to me. I don't get many examples, but she gave me this one. Um, she's been, she watches um, Call the Midwife. Who watches Call the Midwife? I can't stand it. I can't cope I cannot cope I cannot cope with all those scenes you know what I'm talking about call the midwife it, it, it's a it's a story about uh, midwifery and a group of um, uh, wonderful people who were acting as midwives back in the when was it 50s back in the 1950s thank you I see some devotees here some of you will remember the episode because my wife told me about it I didn't see it I won't get all the details right but the episode in which uh, a new drug was discovered that would help women through their pregnancies. And this was, people were very excited about this and you saw the story and it was all very dramatic. If you're very clever, you could tell what was leading at the very end of the episode, you heard the name of the new drug, it was thalidomide and you sort of gasp. And you, because we know where that's gonna lead, this is a terribly negative story, of course, a, a, a terribly disturbing story. We, know, we can look back on that story and you can understand it, can't you? You can understand, you can see mistakes that were made for the mistakes that they were, that you couldn't see at the time. Well, it's not a terrific illustration, but it's, the, it's that kind of thing, as you know where it's all going to lead, you know what's coming, you know where it's all heading, and now you know the fulfilment, you know the realisation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You come back and read your Old Testament, not as though you don't know those things, but you read uh, the Old Testament in the light of those things uh, and therefore see it far more profoundly than it could ever have been seen before. Now, I've said the shape of the Bible is the promise, the long history of God's faithfulness to his promise, and then the fulfilment of the promise. Uh, The book of 2 Samuel that we uh, have before us and that I'm going to be trying to uh, introduce to you as best I can over the next little while Uh, The book of 2 Samuel, of course, falls right in the middle of that history. Um, You've worked your way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel picks up at the the next point. And as you read um, the, uh, the history that 2 Samuel records and the many individual stories that make up that history, you can, of course, read them at various levels. It's not wrong to read one of these stories and be just impacted by its moral lesson. That's not wrong. It's not wrong to be intrigued by the history that is recounted here. It's not wrong to read these, but the most important level is to see the connections between what you're reading and the promise. That this, remember, this is the story of God's faithfulness to his promises. The connections between this story and the promise and then this story and the fulfilment of the promise. Now, uh, I'm going to illustrate that in a number of ways as we have a look at some parts of 2 Samuel uh, in a little while. But uh, from these preliminaries, we're up to number four, um, where we want to ask, where has one Samuel left us? We want to try and get a a bit of a feel for where we are in the story. Uh, We should all be aware that uh, the big history that the Old Testament tells is a continuous story beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and going through book after book after book till you get to the end of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 25. It's one big, long story. Not my purpose now to give you that story, but we're jumping into the middle of it and we've just come, uh, and as we begin to Samuel, we've got to realise we've just finished reading 1 Samuel. Where has 1 Samuel left us? Well, 1 Samuel was basically the story of Saul among other things, we'll come to some other things in a moment, but the story of Saul, Israel's first king. Do you remember, if you were involved in the studies of 1 Samuel, back in chapter 8, how the people demanded a king? Uh, Their demand for a king was really an act of rebellion. They were dissatisfied with the way God was caring for them, and they wanted a king like all the nations round about. And God gave them Saul. In some ways, it was to teach them a lesson. You want a king like the nations, I'll give you a king like the nations. And Saul was called the king that you have chosen for yourselves. Uh, that I think is in chapter 8, verse 18. The king that you have chosen for yourselves. Saul, Saul's story, of course, is a very sad one. You've gone into, we're not going to get into the details and all the complexities of Saul's story tonight. The key thing to understand is he turned out to be a man who disobeyed God. And if he's a man who disobeyed God, he can hardly be the king of God's people, can he? And he was rejected by God. Uh, the, the key stories there are in chapters 13 and 15. And the story then pans out, until the, whole, the, the, the whole account, until Saul died in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. So the immediate background to 2 Samuel is the death of Saul, the failure, the king whom you have chosen for yourselves. The king who was disobedient to God. Can't have a king over God's people who is disobedient. But it's not only the story of Saul, 1 Samuel. It's the story of another uh, extraordinary person uh, by the name of David. The story of David, whose story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In the first first verse of 1 Samuel 16, God describes David as the king that he has chosen for himself. Saul the man you have chosen for yourselves, David, the man, God says, uh, or the king that I have chosen for myself. And so David becomes king, or sorry, he hasn't become king yet, but David appears on a very different basis to Saul. He's God's choice for God's own reasons. And through chapter 16, where we first meet David, right through to chapter 31, There's a sort of interplay between Saul and David and if you remember the stories, David certainly shines in a very bright light beside Saul. Saul becomes murderous, Saul becomes hateful and David patiently waits. One of the key things you see through 1 Samuel is the way in which David refused to take the kingdom. You see, he wasn't like the rulers in this world. He didn't take power for himself, he waited. God had promised he would give it to him. It was for God to give it to him in his own time. And so when you come to the end of 1 Samuel and you know that there's a king coming who's going to be a king for God, God's choice is a king, not the man we have chosen for ourselves, but God's king, this person of David who has been shining through the later chapters of 1 Samuel, uh, you're looking forward to this kingdom coming. That's where 1 Samuel has left us. So we come to 2 Samuel. Uh, I must say, friends, I'm not quite sure what to do in a sort of half an hour with a book like this. So what I've decided to do is I've given you an outline, a sort of outline of the book. And what I thought I'd do is look at it with you, sort of high level, and we'll go down until we run out of time. All right, look at it at high level and then go down a bit, uh, in a bit more detail like that. So at high level, you can see the main headings. Uh, I think 2 Samuel falls pretty naturally into four parts. Let me just say a few words about each part and then we'll go back and look at each part in a bit more detail. The first part is chapter 1 verse 1 through to 5 verse 3, which I've called the coming of the kingdom. It's the story of how David became king. In other words, it's about the coming of David's kingdom. But it's complicated. It's complicated. It's not the case that when Saul died, David became king and it was all simple. It was complicated. It took that long, took through till, till chapter five, verse three, before he is king of the nation of Israel. Why was it complicated? Uh, that's a rhetorical question. Please don't start answering my questions or I'll get thoroughly confused. Uh, it's, why was it complicated is the question to ask as you read through these chapters. And you might think, has the reason that David, be, David, God's choice to be king over Israel, God's choice to be king over his Old Testament people, is the reason that it was complicated, David becoming king, got anything to do, does it shed any light on the way in which it's been complicated for Jesus to become king? Jesus didn't become king over God's people in Genesis chapter 4. There's been a long story. Indeed, You begin um, uh, John's gospel and you learn even as Jesus came into the world, it didn't suddenly happen, it wasn't suddenly welcomed by everybody. It didn't work like that, it worked a bit differently, it was complicated. He came to his own people and his own people received him not. Those of you who read the old versions of the Bible, and I'm sure sure the the more recent versions used, he, he was not welcomed. There's an interesting parallel and there's an interesting reflection on why it is why why is God dealing with us like that when God nominates the king why doesn't he just impose the king on us why is it why is it being done in that complicated way that's part of the story that you read uh, through those first uh, four and a bit chapters the coming of the kingdom the second section you see in the second main heading there uh, runs from chapter 5 verse 4 through to the end of chapter 10 uh, which is a description of the kingdom of David. David has become king, and you see what his kingdom was like. What was God's Old Testament king like? What was his kingdom like? What was it like to have God's king as your king? And as you read through those chapters, it's worth seeing, is, is, is this, and I, I believe it is, is this in any way preparing us to understand what it's like for us? to have God's King as our King? Is it giving us the categories to understand what it means to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our King? Uh, and I believe it does, and we'll see a little bit more of that if we have time as we uh, go back and look into a bit more detail in a moment. The third main heading over the page, you get to the end of chapter 10, and I think by the end of chapter 10, you can be nothing but uh, wondering at this. There, there are a few things, a few little Hints that all is not perfect in David's kingdom. But I'll tell you, it's pretty good. Certainly an awful lot better than it was in Saul's kingdom. And there are some wonderful, wonderful things that happen in David's kingdom. You get to the end of chapter 10 and you just wonder what's going to happen in chapter 11 and bang! Chapter 11 is an absolute shock. Turning the page from chapter 10 to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is like turning the page from Chapter 2 to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. You know, you're in the Garden of Eden and all is wonderful. God's grace and generosity towards the human beings who are, enjoy the harmony of harmony with the, the, the garden in which they've been placed. Harmony with God. Harmony with each other. Uh, wonderful scene at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis. And then you turn the tra- page to chapter 3 and disaster strikes. Uh, it's very similar. When you turn to chapter 11. Uh, I think chapter 11 is the best known of the stories in 2 Samuel. These books seem to get best known stories don't they? What's the one in 1 Samuel? David and Goliath obviously, David and Bathsheba are here in 2 Samuel. Uh, it's an extraordinary narrative, I mean even those who don't uh, believe the Bible in the way in which they should uh, and the way in which we do, uh, recognise that just as a narrative, just as a story it is brilliantly written, brilliantly told with all sorts of subtleties and depths and I hope that you'll spend some time it. I've uh, frequently in teaching this part of the Bible, taken about four or five talks to work through that story. Uh, there's just so much in it uh, that is uh, very worthwhile. You're not going to do that if you're going to get through the whole book in a term though, are you? Um, What happens in chapter 11 is you suddenly realise David failed. He might have been chosen by God to be God's king, but he wasn't up to it. He could not be the king in God's kingdom. He could not bring God's kingdom. Why? Well, have a look at that chapter and you'll see. And the why, of course, the answer is because he's like Adam. Because he's like us. Because he too uh, is a sinner. Uh, You get to the end of chapter 11 and you say, I wonder if there is any hope, if there is any possibility of the kingdom of God coming. How could it come? Uh, Well, Actually, I'm getting into more detail here than than I need to. What what you're aware of when you turn the page to chapter 11 uh, is that, and and as you read the following chapters, uh, which recount the failure of David through to chapter 20 of this book, Uh, you you become um, profoundly aware that if God's kingdom is ever going to come, something better than David has got to happen. Uh, You can see, I hope, how that too is preparing us to understand and appreciate uh, the Lord Jesus. When you get to uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, you've got to the end of the story that 2 Kings is going to tell, really, in terms of its chronological story. And then the fourth section there, which I don't think we'll have time to be looking at at all, but it's a kind of appendix uh, or an epilogue. Uh, It doesn't continue the, the chronological story, but in chapter 21... You sort of is the story now. Let's look back on the story and pick out some episodes that haven't been told to you from various points that illustrate various uh, various points and help you to understand the relationship between the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God. Why was it that David's kingdom wasn't the forever kingdom? Uh, why? But but how, how did it relate to the kingdom of God, the kingdom? Uh, that must come and that must be forever. All right, that's a broad outline of the book. And I think that as you're reading through the book, it's very important to know where you are in the book, what part of the book are you in, and the main themes that are going on there as you look at the uh, particular details. What we do now is go back and work through the book in a little bit more detail and see how far we get uh, just in the time that we have. And if we don't get all that far... That's okay. If we get get there really quickly, I don't know what will happen. We'll have an early night. Uh, Come back to the beginning of 2 Samuel with me. And again, following the notes, I've just drawn out uh, the main episodes or the main ideas in each section. Now we're looking at the section called The Coming of the Kingdom. See how the book begins, uh, setting it up for us. After the death of Saul. Right, that's the thing we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 31. So this is, this is the book of what happened after the death of Saul. And then we're reminded that as Saul died, if you can remember the story, David was striking down the Amalekites. David was being victorious and that had, he'd done that, he'd struck down the Amalekites and then David remained for two days in Ziklag and then the story unfolds. And the first long chapter... Which is a page and a half in my Bible, uh, takes its time in dealing with the news of Saul's death reaching David. I'm not going to go into all the details of that story, it's lots of little things to look at, but the thing that you must be struck by is that though Saul was a failure, Saul was disobedient to God, Saul was rejected by God and therefore Saul died, there is a strong sense in this opening chapter of the tragedy of Saul's death. Uh, David gets that. Even David who, says Saul was, well, David was Saul's enemy. David refused to have Saul as his enemy. But when Saul died, you don't, say, you don't see David rubbing his hands and saying, great, I'm rid of my enemy. You don't see David saying, now I can become king. You have David weeping at the tragedy uh, of Saul's death. There's more to it than that, but it strikes me at the very beginning of this book that the sadness and the tragedy of human death is made very clear, even the death of Saul. Um, The poem that David composed, it's... um, I suppose you could call it the original eulogy. It did get me thinking about eulogies. Sorry, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here. But, you know, eulogies are an interesting thing that we've developed as a practice. When somebody dies, we come together, and customarily, um, somebody tells their story, speaks about them, um, sometimes at great length, uh, sometimes very, very movingly. But have you noticed, I wonder if this, this has happened to you in funerals, when you listen to the eulogy, you listen to the eulogy and you feel really weak because the person who's died sounds so wonderful. And it, it is like that, isn't it? The eulogy, eulogy I, um, technically the, the term is good words. And it is natural at a time like that that we say good things about the person who has died. I've got some friends who get a little annoyed at, the, at how, uh, how one-sided eulogies tend to be. And as I read David's eulogy of Saul, it's very one-sided. It's very positive about Saul. And I think it's for good reason. Because when someone has died... Why are we grieving? It's because of the good that we have lost. It's not that their crankiness has come to an end. That's not why we're grieving. We're grieving because there was goodness in the, in the person that God had made, the person that God had given us. And it's, it's the good things that we have lost in the losing that person that is our grief. And the eulogy, David's eulogy here, puts into words and helps us to understand the grief that we're experiencing. And so it seems to me perfectly appropriate. that, Of course, you don't say things that are not true about a person. But what you you put into words is, what is it that we thank God for in this person, and that we regret has now come to an end that is no longer with us? Anyway, a, a lot to think about, I think, in those opening two chapters at a whole lot of different levels, as Saul's death is not just passed over, uh, Saul's death is reflected on in some um, significance however when you turn to chapter 2 it's time for David to become king but as I said it's complicated have a look at chapter 2 verse 1 after this David inquired of the Lord uh, David wondering well is now the time that I should do anything he says shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah uh, and the Lord said to him go up and David said oh, okay Uh, To which one should I go up? And he said to him, to Hebron. Trouble is, most of us don't know our Bibles nearly well enough. There should have been, throughout our hall here, a gasp when I said to Hebron. Suddenly, to Hebron. What's the significance of God telling David, go up to Hebron? What is Hebron, if you know Bible story well? Shout out, this isn't a rhetorical question. What's the significance of Hebron in the Bible story? Whose town would you say Hebron was? Do you know who's buried there? No. Abraham. When you come across a place name in the Bible story, it won't always yield fruit, but often, very often it will. When you come across a place name like Hebron, get whatever software you use these days. In my day, you would have said pull out a concordance, but no one knows what that is these days. But pull out whatever means you have to look up words and look, where have we heard of Hebron before in the Bible story? And if you do it, it's all over the place in Genesis in the story of Abraham. Abraham's buried there. Rebecca's buried there. Isaac is buried there. The, the patriarchs are buried there. In other words, it's the place where Abraham is David is now going to pick up the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham is going to continue in David. That's what David is about. What's Abraham about? Abraham is about that promise we talked about. Abraham is the one who received the promise that the whole Bible is about. Go up to Hebron is where David is going to begin to reign because his reign uh, uh, has got to do with the promise that God made to Abraham. Um. Uh, And so we find, look at verse 4, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So David is king, but he's just king over one of the tribes, not all twelve. The next thing you read about in the next paragraph uh, is a fascinating and typical story of David, now that he's king, only king over a little tiny bit of the nation, but he's king. Now he shows kindness. Uh, That's the right word. I don't know what word is used in the... You've got NIVs, most of you? Yes, I've got an ESV in front of me. Sorry, I'm old-fashioned in every single respect. Uh, But uh, loyalty, steadfast love, words like that that you see in that little paragraph. Uh, The best translation, I think, is kindness. David shows kindness to those who could be, who would be, who are likely to be his enemies. And again and again, we're going to see this in David. That's the kind of king he was. That's the kind of thing he did. That's the kind of of thing God's king does. He shows kindness to his would-be enemies. However, uh, from verse 8 of chapter 2, just have to take a little bit of time to get this, from verse 8 of chapter 2, we find that the rest of the nation decide they don't want this king to reign over them. They don't want this man to reign over them. They'd rather have a son of Saul reign over them. They'd like rather have a king like Saul. They'd rather have a king of their own choice. They'd rather have a king who's much more like the kings of the nations than God's king. And so uh, you see there's a period of time, in other words, uh, something like what happened, you know, this is a kind of anticipation Of what will happen with Jesus he came to his own people and his own people received him not although there were some who received him and to those he gave the right to become the children of God see this is why the coming of God's kingdom is complicated because although of course he could God has decided to deal with us in a way that has full of kindness and grace and patience We, on the other hand, we human beings, have not welcomed him with open arms. And so there is a period of time. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Since the coming of Jesus. What's that time all about? You know, there's some key passages in the New Testament that deal with that. It's God's patience giving us time. Time to turn to his king and stop rejecting him. It's the kind of thing that was going on here, you see. And as you see it going on here in this concrete historical situation, it helps us to appreciate and understand what has happened with the coming of Jesus. However, through a long and very messy story of power plays and people trying to do all sorts of things not to have God's king reign over them, uh, eventually, uh, in chapter 5, they are, so to speak, brought to their knees. Uh, and uh, 5 verse 3, again I'm not going into the details, but the next key point in the story, all the elders of Israel, so this is the whole nation, came to the king, this is David at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. So now David is king over the whole nation of Israel, the whole of the Old Testament people of God. That's part one part two, where we see what David's kingdom is like. And I think you can uh, can divide this into as many episodes as you like, uh, just depending on how much detail you want to break break this section down into. Uh, But what we are seeing in these chapters is what God's king is like, what God's Old Testament king was like. Uh, What is God's Old Testament kingdom like? The Old Testament King, the Old Testament Kingdom that are in anticipation, a foreshadowing of the New Testament King and the New Testament Kingdom. The first thing you see that David does uh, in chapter 5 from verse 6 to 16 is he takes the city that is going to be the city of David and here begins, uh, there is a bit of a backstory, but really here begins the story of Jerusalem in the Bible a story that is going to go right through the whole story, this city is going to be significant and important until you get to, tell me two really, really important references to Jerusalem in the New Testament. Anybody give me an idea? There may well be more than two, but this afternoon I thought of two. Revelation Revelation 21 is the great one, isn't it? The New Jerusalem coming out out of heaven. What, what, what is that? What, what does the new Jerusalem mean? Well of course you understand the new Jerusalem because it's a new version of the old Jerusalem. What was the old Jerusalem? It's the city of God's king. The city of God's king is where we are going to end up. Uh, uh, before that uh, I thought of Hebrews 12 which also speaks of the heavenly Jerusalem to which we have come. When we've Uh, come to Jesus. We are are already citizens of that city as we've come to God's king already. The story of Jerusalem begins uh, there in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. Uh, Then uh, we see later in that chapter from 17 to 25, uh, the other thing that God's king does is he has victory over his enemies. Victory over the enemies of God's people. That's what God's king does. He defeats our enemies. And then thirdly, you turn into chapter 6, astonishing chapter, where the Ark of the Covenant is brought by David into Jerusalem. This too helps us to understand what Jerusalem is about. Because in this city, it's not just the city of David. It's the city, uh, how does Psalm 48 put it? Uh, the city of the great king, the city of the great king, Uh, because the Ark of the Covenant represents God as king. And so the Ark is brought into Jerusalem, symbolizing the fact, complicated story, granted, but that's for you to work out in, in detail at another time. But the Ark is brought into Jerusalem, signifying the fact that in this city, the ultimate king is God, and God's king reigns for God. Under God, before God, uh, before the Lord is a phrase that runs right through uh, to Samuel chapter 6 uh, numerous times. David is king before the Lord, in front of the Lord. The Lord uh, is the true and ultimate king. That's what God's king does. God's king brings God's reign over uh, his people. That's what uh, the Ark represents, in the ark, of the, the, the ark of the Covenant in the city of Jerusalem. Then over the page... Fourthly, turn the page again, you come to 2 Samuel chapter seven, and, and you find David is, he's got a palace now. He's, uh, he's a pretty kingly king. Uh, he's comfortable in his um, cedar palace, but he's a little disconcerted that he is the king in, the, in, the, in his cedar palace, and the ark representing God God's kingdom, God's throne is sitting somewhere in the city of Jerusalem in a tent. And he says, this can't be right. And he uh, consults the prophet Nathan. This is the first appearance of Nathan the prophet uh, in our story. Uh, it won't be the last by any means. He consults Nathan and Nathan, Nathan scratches his head and seems theologically right to him. And so uh, Nathan says, do whatever you think the right thing to do. But that night, God spoke to Nathan. And the words that God spoke to Nathan are, without any shadow of a doubt, the most important thing we've read so far in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. I think it's probably the most important thing we've read since about Genesis 12, actually, if you've been reading your Bible. Because the word, and uh, uh, we haven't got time to dig into it, I hope that you will have time to dig into it. What God spoke to David was the most extraordinary promise. Remember, this is a God who made a promise from the right, right at the beginning. The promise gets clearer and clearer as you go through time. The terms of the promise become clearer and clearer. And now the promise comes to these terms. I'll just look at, pick it up in chapter seven, verse 12. This is God's word to David through Nathan the prophet. Seven, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, we're not there yet, is what this promise basically says. You think you're there? No, we haven't arrived yet. And the time to do something about the ark being in a tent is not yet. But the day is going to come when a son of David will come to the throne. And when that son of David comes to the throne, he is going to build a house for my name, is the way in which it's put here. That's the promise. How was that promise fulfilled? First answer, of course, is that it was fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon, in 1 Kings, which is now the most exciting book in the Bible, in one king, Solomon becomes king, David's son. So God raised up a son, whose uh, uh, kingdom is, was absolutely extraordinary. And Solomon built this house in Jerusalem that many people call the temple. The Bible doesn't call it the temple; calls it the house of the Lord. Uh, and that that house is built, uh, and in that place, and so what God promised happened. Um, just anticipating, you know, the story is going to unfold, and all those sort of things, and, and, and things are going to get unstuck, and it's going to be absolutely clear. This isn't the permanent thing. This isn't the final thing. This is a this is an anticipation of the final thing. But the day will come when Jesus has gathered his disciples around him, and he and they identify who he is. Remember in the words of Peter: "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." and recognising that he is the promised king, what were Jesus' words? I will build. But not a physical stone house in Jerusalem now. I will build my church. And so Jesus does what the son of David was to do. Jesus does what uh, King Solomon did in anticipation. Jesus does in a permanent everlasting eternal way as he builds his church and announces that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now as we read on uh, so there's the the promise and a wonderful prayer from David in response to that promise in chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7 it's not quite as exciting as David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba at one level that just shows we're excited about the wrong things okay uh, it's the most extraordinary The that God who we met in Genesis chapter 1, who's created all things, has made this promise. A son of David will become king and his kingdom will be established forever. And the rest of the Old Testament story is the story of what God did in faithfulness to the promise, now expressed like that, now with those terms. Friends, I think we ought to pause there. Uh, Now, let me take two more minutes and I'll just sketch out what what follows and then we can come back and have questions. Uh, You will dig out the details as you work through the whole thing. The the rest of this part, uh, we see David being victorious again in chapter 8. We see David being kind to potential enemies again in chapter 9. This is what God's king is like. He's victorious and he's kind. We see his kindness again in chapter 10, but his kindness is spurned. Uh, by those to whom he shows it. And then you get to the end of uh, chapter 10 and you say, well, uh, yeah, uh, if you look back very, very, very carefully, you'll see some hints that this isn't a perfect kingdom, but what a king he was. I've got no doubt in my mind that David, in fact, was one of the greatest men who ever, has ever lived. Uh, if you were to uh, draw up a list of the great human beings in the history of the world... Uh, you know, a short list, right? There are a few that stand out, aren't there? You know, in our own time, many of us would want to name a Nelson Mandela or you know, I don't know who would come to your mind. But I tell you, on, on any short list, David would be there. He's an extraordinary man, a great man, a good one of the best. Now, the reason that he was one of the best is God was with him. Through his story, that is said over and over and over again because the Lord was with him. That's why he was great. That's why he was good. But of course he wasn't good enough. And in chapter 11 we see uh, a story. When you, when you get to look at the David and Bathsheba story closely, have a close look and see the hints that are there that the writer has deliberately put there that remind us of the Garden of Eden. There are hints and echoes of Genesis chapter 3 uh, in the story of David and Bathsheba. And this great and good man was a scoundrel he took Bathsheba I don't think she had any choice in the matter I had sex with her she became pregnant the way to deal with that a long story cut it short was to get her husband murdered and then he felt really good about it and he said, sent a message off to his commander who'd uh, implemented the murder for him and killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and said, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. Don't let, I'm giving you this literally. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. Because it's not evil in your king's eyes, let's just get on with life. The man seemed to have no conscience whatsoever. It's extraordinary that such a man could fall to such depths. But he did. And the chapter 11 concludes with the words, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then you get chapter 12, which just blows me away. God sent Nathan back to David. I'm sure you know the story. Where it led to was David acknowledged his sin. I have sinned. It's sort of, this is the time to go and read Psalm 51 because that's what he was saying. Do you know what came then? Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. And I want to say, that's outrageous. I sort of want to swell up and say, he can't do that. This man is an adulterer, a deceiver, a liar and a murderer. Confesses his sin and God says, the the prophet says, the Lord has taken away your sin. David's failure still had massive consequences. But he didn't lose the kingdom. That's the story of the rest of the book. The massive consequences. But... God didn't discard him. God had promised he wouldn't discard him, and he didn't discard him. And uh, the story that unfolds is just a remarkable anticipation of Jesus himself. You see in these closing chapters of 2 Samuel, an extraordinary anticipation of the sufferings of Jesus. Again, I, uh, I'm i taking too long here, but the... the uh, Within the story, you get a, a, a moment when David, when David is rejected and driven out of Jerusalem and he actually treads the path that Jesus will tread as he goes to the Mount of Olives and crosses the, the Brook Kidron, the, the same geographical places are mentioned, particularly as uh, in, in uh, John's account of that. As Jesus left Jerusalem, can you feel it? God's king rejected again uh, and, the, and the pathos of that moment in, uh, uh, in the account in 2 Samuel is just extraordinary. The whole land is weeping. It's come to this. The great king who'd been so great, who'd been so good, the wonderful kingdom he'd brought through his own wickedness has come to this. And of course, years later, you see Jesus leaving Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron, climbing the Mount of Olives, You say, it's come to this. He's done nothing wrong. The perfect king, and yet he was rejected. Rejected, why? Great mystery of the New Testament, isn't it? He was rejected for us. All right, friends, I think we ought to stop and have our break. Uh, Run over time, I apologize for that. Why don't we have a break, come back, and we'll have um, any questions you'd like to raise. I uh, I won't go through any more detail now.
0: Uh, I actually got in first and asked a couple of my cheeky questions to John in an email I sent about a month ago. And, um, John, I'm going to suggest maybe you give us a couple of um, quick pointers on those two questions that are at the bottom of your outline, and then we'll have an opportunity to take questions from the floor. So we'll just get a show of hands once uh, we're ready to go with that. Thanks, John.
1: When we read um, Old Testament books, we... uh Uh, There are things that trouble us, aren't they? Uh, And we can identify, and uh, Scott identified a couple of them and asked me to think about them, and I didn't think about them as much as I should have, but I'll try and think about them. Uh, One of them, of course, is the degree of violence. Uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, they're pretty violent stories, yeah? Uh, They're not the only violent stories in the Old Testament. What do we make of the degree of violence in the Old Testament? I don't know that I've got easy, I haven't got easy answers to that. Part of the answer is just be careful of making our time uh, in history uh, or thinking that it's normal. (laughs) Because our time and our situation in the history of the world is very, very far from normal. Uh, in many, many ways, it's absolutely, remarkably, astonishingly wonderful. Uh, how it's happened is a fascinating thing that I don't think anybody quite understands. I've got no doubt that the gospel of Jesus had a lot to do with it, but that we are living in societies where violence is, is, is abhorrent to the vast majority of people. You know, that hasn't been many cultures in the history of the world. Uh, and here we are finding it. We live in a culture, I heard somebody describe it the other day. You know, you live in a a society and a culture where the default position between strangers is trust. You know, when you sit down beside someone in the bus, you don't think you're going to be knifed, do you? Well, we, we laugh, but there are plenty of societies historically and indeed in our world today where you'd be very careful about who you sat down beside in the bus. There's something extraordinary about our time, I'm saying, and and part of it, a big part of it, is a product of the gospel of Jesus. The Old Testament is dealing with a world a long, long time ago when the gospel of Jesus had not done its work, uh, hadn't done the, all the work that, 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 that we benefit from today. It was a violent world, and into that violent world comes the work of God. Uh, best thing I can sort of think of would be if God were to intervene to do his thing in, let us say, Syria today, do you think it would happen without any violence? Of course it wouldn't. Violent evil has to be dealt with and violent evil has to be dealt with violently. Now, it's great when you can get up, come up with institutions, you come up with ways, you can come up with a society where evil can be dealt with in different ways, but this, this Old Testament world was different. So that'd be my first point for us to... Judge and pass judgment on an ancient society like an Old Testament society and ancient events like Old Testament events from the comfort of our of our world uh, is sort of anachronistic and inappropriate. But the second thing is that it's fairly clear that at least some of the... I mean, there's all sorts of different kinds of violence in the Old Testament and, and, and something different might need to be said about different ones, but... Some of the violence of the Old Testament is, in fact, God's judgment. That is, I suppose, where we're most uneasy. That we see this violent story and we say, the hand of God is behind that? Yep. God's judgment. If we think for a moment that God's judgment has sort of disappeared and there's nothing that we think about that is violent, is that the right word, in God's judgment? I'm sorry, we're wrong. We're out of touch with reality. The day is coming when we we, we call it traditionally, Bible terms, the day of judgment. The day is coming when God's judgment will fall on those who oppose him, those who defy him, those who refuse him. And uh, it will be just, it'll be good, it'll be right. Not everything that happened in the Old Testament was completely just and good and right but it was a kind of anticipation of a day that is far worse than anything you see in the Old Testament. So those are the kind of perspectives that I try to think about and then any particular episode you've got to think through the details of. But the broad brush thing, uh, don't... it's Yeah, I I think I've said the two things, I won't repeat them. Uh, Oh, The other one was, uh, I put it on the notes as other moral questions, but really Scott was very particular about David's many wives. You find them in 2 Samuel 3, uh, verses 2 to 5. Well, you don't really find them so much as you find a list of his sons, but you find out that all his sons had a different mother. Uh, that, 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 that seems clear enough to me. Uh, and it's a very uh, difficult thing. In fact, I, in some ways I find it more difficult, not, not to cope with emotionally, but just to think through what's going on here. Uh, David's uh, several wives... Uh, are never commented on in the narrative. Uh, The narrative never criticizes him for this. He's never, no judgment is passed on him for uh, his several wives. Uh, And again, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Uh, Except this, Uh, if there is a silence in the narrative, it may have something to do with the fact that these are not morality tales. That is, not every wrong action receives a moral comment Uh, There are a number of other things that David did that I think were wrong that don't receive any comment. Uh, He started, I think it's in chapter 8, he started to put together chariots. Get your concordance out or whatever else you use. Look at chariots through the Bible. Do you think he should have been doing that? I don't think he should have, but the writer doesn't actually say that. And there are a number of other things where the, 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 uh, the characters do things that are not right but this isn't a morality tale and therefore the writer's interest is not so much in moral judgments on all the aspects but just telling you what happened and the consequences and so on to, and telling you the story. Having said that, uh, you can point to the fact that the Old Testament is generally not positive about the idea of polygamy. 1 Samuel 1 doesn't work out well does it when uh, the, the the two wives of Elkanah Hannah and Peninnah uh, the uh, the wives are called rivals uh, and that's how it works out uh, in practice uh, I've noted here that Deuteronomy 21 verses 15 to 17 actually having more than one wife is not forbidden in the Old Testament law but there is a provision in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21 for uh, how to make sure when the troubles arise that certainly will, uh, how, how you're to function. Right? So there's a negative, it's not, not prohibited. but And uh, Deuteronomy 17 verse 17 certainly says that the king in Israel is not to have many wives. I suppose the question is, uh, did David have enough to have many? Uh, his son certainly did. So uh, Solomon in one kings 11 had many wives Uh, you have a look at the number in one kings 11 and see if you can see if you can get your head around that and that was a big part of his downfall i don't think i can say any more than that except that right at the beginning of the bible you have got god's ideal for the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage the bible's definition of marriage is there in genesis chapter 2 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's Jesus himself who picks up that definition and, uh, and, and, and teaches, teaches it as God's purpose from the beginning. And therefore I think we need to see things like uh, David's several wives as aberrations of God's ideal. Uh, and that becomes uh, crystal clear, it seems to me, within the teaching of the New Testament. Okay, there's two attempts at answering Scott's hard questions. Now can we have some easy ones, please?
0: Is there anyone who would like to ask a question? Just raise your hand and we'll bring the microphones down. And if you'd be happy just to say your name and what congregation you normally come along and speak nice and clear, that'd be excellent.
1: Hi, my name's Pippa and I come to five o'clock. I was wanting to ask about in chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, you talked about Jesus um, being the King coming again. But I didn't really understand the next verse, the second bit of that, because it says in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Yep. So could you explain you, that Prima. verse a bit? Well, Why do you think I stopped before I got to that verse? <laughs> uh, firstly, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son. Uh, That was true of Solomon. Uh, Not in the same sense that it's true of Jesus, of course, but in the sense of being an adopted son. So God treated Solomon as his son. Uh, Solomon knew God as his father. Uh, So this relationship between the king and and God was a father-son relationship. Uh, Nothing like that was true of Saul. See, this is the, the grace of God towards this king. And when Solomon committed iniquity, he was disciplined with the rod of men and the stripes of men. Uh, The story is told in 1 Kings, the best book in the Old Testament. Uh, Perfectly clear. So you can see how those words are fulfilled in Solomon. And the first fulfillment of these words is Solomon. Now, what happens then to these words if a king were to come who doesn't commit iniquity? So when he commits iniquity, of course implies if he commits iniquity, when he commits iniquity but if he doesn't of course what follows doesn't isn't going to happen what happens when a king comes who doesn't commit iniquity well you, when he commits iniquity i will discipline him implies if he doesn't commit iniquity i won't discipline him okay now some people want to read into this jesus taking our punishment i don't think i think that's reading too much into these words they just seem to me to be a statement of uh, there are going to be lots of sons of david actually Who reigns? Solomon's the first of them. And whenever any of them commit iniquity, they'll be disciplined, but God is not going to reject them altogether. That's the promise. When a king comes who doesn't commit iniquity, then of course uh, he he suffers, but he suffers for another reason altogether. Uh, Got to do with uh, taking our sins on himself. Do you want to come back on that, Pepper? No, that's great. Thanks. Okay, thank you.
0: Other questions?
1: I think we ought to alternate sides so Scott has to run right across each time.
2: Hello, I'm John. I go to the evening service, 6.30. Um, My question, you just touched on um, when David has to flee Jerusalem uh, because Absalom kind of comes to power. Yep. So before that, there's quite a lot of backstory um, and you're saying that there's a meta thing, parallel meta story that happens over the whole book. So Absalom was exiled by, well, sort of exiled, kicked out for four years and David kind of pardons him and lets him back and before that he's killed off Amnon. Yes. And before that um, Tamar's been raped. Yes. And what, is there a meta story over all those sequences of events and if there is yeah, uh,
1: if, if I understand what a meta story is, uh, it is, uh, go to chapter 12, this is after David's sin, and Nathan is speaking to him, uh, verse 11 of chapter 12, uh, verse 10 if you like, so start there, uh, where it's been made clear to David, you've despised God. You've despised my word. That is the word, the promise that had been given to David. Uh, In what he has done, he's despised that. He's despised God. Verse 10, again, here's the ESV. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite for your wife to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and so on and so on. So, and and the, the rest of the story is the story of that. This is the consequences of David's wickedness. David's wickedness, he ends up having a son who's no better. I think perhaps he's even worse in, in Amnon. Like father, like son. Uh, do you think uh, that a man like David could produce a son who could be the king over God's kingdom? How could that possibly happen? Look at what David's sons are like. Like father, like son. And so the, the story is the working out of the consequences of David's evil. that And at the same time, woven through that, the extraordinary fact that God continues to be gracious and God is not going to let go. Uh, God is going to accomplish his good purposes uh, through this man and through a son of this man. And so you've got that interweaving of human wickedness uh, and God's determined grace. So, John, where are you? Yeah, these lights, I can hardly see uh, who I'm looking at. Is is that what you're asking about, mate?
2: Uh, Yes, it is. Um, There was also, I was curious about, uh, he forgives him. Is there any judgment over the forgiveness or is there anything to be learnt, moral lesson, in the way that David forgives him and says, like Joab talks to him and says, hey, mate, why don't you let him come back? Um,
1: Oh, yeah. I, I think there's a whole lot of detail to work out there about David learning and David's inadequacy. And you've got to take each story in its own terms and and, and work out what's going on here. And you've got a man who is gradually finding his way back uh, uh, by the extraordinary kindness of God. The kindness of God works its way on David, and David, uh, my my words, finds his way back. Uh, Somewhere about chapters 15 or 16, you start to see him expressing the kind of faith in God he'd had, he'd had before. But it's a long journey back and there's a lot of people hurt on the way. Sin has consequences. Real forgiveness from God does not mean there are simply no consequences. Now, it's not as cheap as that, and not as easy as that. The forgiveness is real and, and, and extraordinary and it means that our sins, David's sin, uh, does not do all the damage it could do but it doesn't mean there's no damage. And uh, that, that, that story unfolds like that. Thank you. Thanks, John.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. We're just going gonna to flick here, sir, because
1: you're close. Oh. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, I'm Ross. Thanks, you're Ross. Just over from Western Australia, mate. So I uh, appreciate... Um, Good on you, mate. Your talk tonight, mate. It's worthwhile coming over, quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs> just let us know when the next one's on. <laughs> Now John, you mentioned Hebron. I'm very interested in that. Just talking about geography, um, just uh, generally I ask you the question as to the, there's a fair bit of significance between Abraham and Jesus Christ as far as geography and, and uh, where he was crucified and where Abraham uh, was supposed to uh, crucify or, or, or offer up his son and, and Egypt and whatever. Yeah. Is there a similar sort of uh, relationship? Uh, because for tonight I never thought about David, but is there a similar sort of geographical reference that there's meanings behind uh, yep. uh, that with uh, David and, and uh, Jesus? What a terrific question, mate. Uh, thanks for coming. It's worth coming from Western Australia to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> <Isn't> it's a great one. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know the very first sentence of the New Testament? Very first sentence of the New Testament. This is the story, of, funny translations of the first word there, but this is, this is the account of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, you want to understand the person I'm about to write about, says Matthew. You've got to understand he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. So you've, you've highlighted the two key figures uh, in, David, in, in, in Jesus' genealogy who are absolutely key to understanding him. Uh, there's a whole lot that can be said. You've touched on some of it. With Abraham, of course, Abraham is the one who received God's promise. The promise that is fulfilled in Jesus he's the son of that's the the heart of the significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham and he's the son of David of course because David received the promise in the form of a son of David will be king and now are there parallels between the lives of both of them yeah Uh, and it's fascinating to draw them out Uh, don't overdo it it's not a it's not a case of um, just using your imagination to put these things together but if you, one of the things I pointed out was uh, that period when David was fleeing from Absalom. A whole lot of Psalms were written in that period. You can tell from the superscriptions to the Psalms, at the, to, at the top of the Psalms. Uh, a whole lot of those Psalms uh, are relevant to understanding the suffering of Jesus. So the suffering of David has some sort of echo in the suffering of Jesus. Um, And when, and indeed, uh, as I said, particularly when John describes Jesus uh, leaving Jerusalem uh, because they're after him, uh, going up to the Mount of Olives, he describes it in a way that that clearly echoes David's flight from Jerusalem. So the 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 parallels, and the self conscious way in which Jesus was particularly being another David at various points uh, is, is really. Uh, something those of us who don't know our Old Testaments well enough miss when we're reading the Gospels. As you read to Samuel through, your reading of the Gospels will be enriched because you'll see that over and over again. And the same is true to a certain degree with Abraham, but I think it's particularly true with David. Yep. Thanks, Reed.
2: Thanks, Scott. Um, John, just a
1: query on a couple of phrases that seem to appear in... Not only in Second Samuel, but also other parts of the New Test of the of the Old Testament, is when they get in a bad way they they go and tear their clothes. And I think if, in modern days, if we get in a bad way, we go and buy clothes. But why, <laughs> why? Why are they tearing their clothes? And also the other one is when uh, they're getting into a seem to get up ahead of steam. It says, "Every man to his tent," and I'm not quite sure what that means. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's great, and and looking up, looking for those sort of idioms that seem to be just idioms, don't they? I mean, the the, the uh, they throw dust on their heads too when they're when they're grieving. Uh, so what what you're uh, what you're getting a glimpse into is customs of the culture, I take it. So and uh, I think uh, that in uh, Middle Eastern cultures, some of these things survive to today. Uh, I'm not familiar enough to. Uh, Uh, To pontificate about that, uh, about such things, but I, but I understand some of those customs that you see, and so tearing of clothes, yeah, as a way of showing despair and grief and mourning, and despair was to rip your, rip your garments. Um, uh, uh, That's the first one. Uh, To your tents, uh, I I think it's a way of saying everyone goes home. uh, again a, a kind of idiom for well you have to look at the context for what it is but at the uh, at the end of an event uh, when it's all over it may be a despairing event it may be a happy event but it's over and everybody goes home now sometimes everybody goes home happy, contented uh, but it, it, the event is over and everybody goes home like you will tonight uh, uh, sometimes everybody goes home uh, dejected and miserable, not knowing what's going to to happen next. But it's it's sort of what often happens at the end of a sequence of dramatic events. It's all over, everybody goes home. So picking up on those sort of idioms that look a little strange to us uh, and uh, reflecting on what they meant is very helpful in just getting the stories, yeah. And noticing that they're repeated a lot is a very valuable thing to realise that you are looking at something that's customary.
0: We've got time for one more question. Always like to end with a good one, though, so...
1: Really easy one. Really easy one. Marilyn. Thanks for tonight. That was great. Look, I love, too, how 1 and 2 Samuel kind of run parallel with the Psalms. And what I find hard, though, is I love the Psalms and they speak to me in my kind of modern sensibilities a lot. But the more I find out about... David's story in the midst of his culture and how and who he was, I have to say from my modern position I lose some, this sounds terrible, but some respect for him about how he managed things and dealt with things and I find that impacts me as I read the Psalms. Well, if that makes sense. Can I, 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 I hope that I'm not speaking in any disrespectful way but I hope that your lack of respect for David comes because you see that he is so much like you. Very much so. And I find absolutely... Therefore, yeah, yeah. Uh, So we, uh, yeah, we say he's as as rotten as I am. That's true. That's true. Therefore, wouldn't you think that his psalms, if they're helpful to him, would be helpful to you? That's that's a, a point one. Point two. Uh, the Psalms, there, there are two periods of David's life out of which many of the Psalms were written. The, the one was the period of suffering in 1 Samuel, when he was running away from Saul and, and being persecuted by Saul. Uh, a good number of Psalms come from that. And a good number of Psalms come from the period when uh, Absalom is called, causing his trouble. And uh, Psalm 3 is the first of those. That's uh, ex- explicitly written when uh, David was fleeing from, from Absalom. Um, one of the things we've got to get, though, about the Psalms is they're not a, they're, it, it, the Psalms are not just a book of prayers for godly people to use. They're not a book of spirituality. They're actually the book of the king. These are the prayers of the king. What have they got to do with us? Well, the king is our king. So the, the I right in the Psalms is almost always the king. And that's why in the New Testament, every single citation of the Psalms, I've got a funny feeling there might be one exception to this, so I'll still be dogmatic. But I think that every single citation of the Psalms in the New Testament is about Jesus. It helps you to understand Jesus and his suffering. It helps you to understand Jesus and his victories. It helps you to understand... You see, you read the Psalms, don't you, aren't there things that you find hard to take on your lips? If They say things like... God, if you give me victory, the, whole, the, the nations of the world will rejoice. I say, hey? If I get victory, I don't think the nations are cared one way or the other. <laughs> but if God's king gets victory, then the nation, you know, the, 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 the Psalms are full of God's dealing with me have international consequences. And so the person who can really pray the Psalms is Jesus. But then if he's your king, you can join in his, his psalm, but you join in the psalms with the, the true speaker of the psalms uh, being, uh, being your king. Uh, that really, that's how, that how really I think the psalms work. Just, Say again? That really helps what yep. you just said then. Now, I think can I recommend a book? Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend an author first and then one of his books. Christopher Ash. Uh, if you're a reader of Christian books at all, get hold of anything written by Christopher Ash. It'll do you good. Uh, uh, I just think he's one of the most valuable uh, authors. Unlike me, he's concise, Uh, but penetrating. He's got a little book called Teaching the Psalms. Don't worry about the teaching, because it's about a book about understanding the Psalms. It's not a big book. Uh, It is is revolutionary in helping you to understand the implications of the thing I've just tried to say just then in in, in how to use the Psalms. Teaching the Psalms, Christopher Ash, Um, And while I'm on Christopher Ash, the most powerful and life-changing book I've read in a a good number of years is Christopher Ash's commentary on the book of Job. Uh, It's the same series as that 1 and 2 Samuel commentaries, but it's much better than the 1 and 2 Samuel. I recommend those. Are we done?
0: Uh, Yes. John, I think uh, you're done for a minute, so if you'd like to have a seat and relax, Uh, we've got a few things to do before we wrap up.